This is a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs during our summer meeting in San Diego, California, June 2017. So I should have taken Ken up on his offer for ladies first today, um, because uh, as fast as he talks, he still likes to talk. Um, so I am still Jocelyn Kirby. Um, my talk today is about dermatology and the monitoring that we do in our practice. So let me grab the, here we go. So what I want to try and cover is really just a very quick review of some of the most common drugs that we use and their mechanisms, talk about some of the common and uncommon adverse effects, and really on the basis of that, talk about if something is common and not dangerous, do we need to monitor for it? If it is potentially dangerous, how do we monitor for it and do that effectively? Um, and then talk about some of the medical evidence that's out there. So this is, some, this is really some of the most uh, up-to-date research on monitoring. But I want to go back, because I want you to kind of think for a second. Um, the first time you were going to prescribe a drug like isotretinoin or uh, adalimumab or anything, you know, you were sitting there, you're like, I know I should do some monitoring on this. What should I do? And, you know, who did, what did you do? So anybody, yell it out, what'd you do? Or did you already know? And where did you get that knowledge from if you already knew? From a course? A guideline? Sometimes it's a textbook? I can, Hippocrates, up to date, something like that. Um, so I can tell you that the first time I had to prescribe isotretinoin, I actually faked a page, left the room, and asked a colleague. Um, so I would say sometimes that's valuable because I'm lucky I work with people who, you know, are like the people who write the textbooks on acne, but that's not always the case. The people we sometimes talk to, uh, you know, read the textbook 15 years ago and haven't really changed since then. And I think that there are some opportunities really for all of us to think about the sources of our data, our evidence, and how we can sometimes change our practices going forward. Um, so let's move on. So when I was in residency, we checked blood work on our acne patients on isotretinoin every month. Every blessed month, those teenagers would come in and be like, do I have to have my blood drawn? I was like, yeah, I know it was normal. You're doing great. Let's have a normal test again this month. And it just felt bad. Uh, and then I left my residency program. I went and became a faculty at Penn State. And we had you know, 10 faculty, and everybody did it different. There was a lot of variation. Some people did it three times, some people did it every other month, some people kind of took it on their mood for that day. Um, and so I was like, well, there's so much variation out there, how can we maybe do better? And is there a right way? What does the evidence say? And I think I showed this slide to you yesterday, and we talked about how antibiotic treatment sometimes gets used longer for um, people who end up on isotretinoin. So if you took all the people on isotretinoin and looked back at their duration of antibiotic, it's this nine or 12 or months. And sometimes I wanna say that it, you know, that's not always the provider's fault. So some of it could be the patient. 
saying, I, re I really don't want to go on that drug if I have to get my blood drawn. Like, I'm just not going to do it. And so what I hope you can take away from this is that maybe there's an opportunity to not check blood work every month for these patients. And maybe that helps to take away some of the barriers to moving on to something that might be really effective for those patients who are otherwise on just antibiotics because you don't have anything else that you feel like you can do and you don't want them to have scarring acne. So isotretinoin, you guys know this, uh, mechanism of action, we actually don't know. So when we look at the skin, we can see that the sebaceous gland is decreased. When we measure sebum production, it's decreased. The problem is we are still figuring out how and why that happens so that maybe we can engineer drugs that maybe have fewer side effects but can still do this that are topical. But until that day, uh, we still use isotretinoin. We know that the dose we typically use is this half to one milligram a day for acne. Again, we've talked in some other talks about lower dose uh, regimens, even for acne or other things. And this gold dose of 120, uh, 120 to 150 uh, milligrams cumulatively is sort of the gold standard, but there is some data I just wanted to make you aware of, not related to lab monitoring, that if we push the cumulative dosage there, it does seem like there's a lower risk of relapse, the chance of needing a second course of isotretinoin afterwards. So where did our monitoring habits come from? I learned from my faculty when I was a resident, I did what they told me to do. They got their habits from when isotretinoin first came out, and they never changed. And so the package insert says all kinds of crazy stuff, like checking CPKs and SED rates and CBCs and LFTs and lipids, like weekly or biweekly. And what is until response has been established? I don't really know what that is. So it makes it very murky. So people just sort of invented their own way of doing it, and sometimes that tradition is hard to change. So we did do a very large review of the literature. We looked at all of the cohort studies that had followed people over months and years, thousands of people who took isotretinoin, and what we came up with, and our practice has changed, that we don't do a CBC unless somebody has a risk factor for it. So I had a woman come in a year or two ago, a young woman, she had a history of ITP, so her platelets were not normal to begin with. Now, we know that the chance of isotretinoin causing a problem with somebody's platelets is incredibly rare, but I knew two things. One was if I was gonna do a CBC on anybody, it should be this woman. And number two, there was no way her or her mom were gonna take this drug if I didn't check her CBC. So for the typical person, the person who's never had an issue with any component of their hematologic panel, we do not check a CBC at baseline or while they're on isotretinoin. Now lipid changes, they will happen. Just expect it but expect mild changes. So a small increase, uh, slightly above normal for somebody's triglycerides from 130 to 170, where normal, the upper range, might be 150. Nobody's gonna have a problem with a lipid of 170. And this came up with Dr. Rosen, I think, on the very first day, where we are not really 
monitoring lipids because we're worried about pancreatitis. He's right, there's been 25 published cases of pancreatitis in people who took isotretinoin. How many of them actually had incredibly high triglycerides? One quarter. That means the other three quarters, it's just this either weird coincidence or an idiosyncratic drug effect, but it's not because of the triglycerides. So when we're monitoring lipids, we expect small changes, but not huge ones. And again, it's not always gonna be predictive of pancreatitis. Again, hepatic panel changes. Mild ones are expected. More severe changes only happen in about one to 3% of people. So very, very small changes. So I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, yeah, what do I do if you know, the AST and the ALT are like 45 or 47? That's a grade one change. It's incredibly small elevation above normal. It's not three times normal, which is where we really have to worry for most drug reactions. We talk about being worried and the risk of real damage being three times the upper limit of normal. But a minor change of one grade, that's not necessarily something that's gonna be dangerous. So the other thing to realize is that these changes that we expect and that are mild, they happen early. So if we're going to monitor for the change to make sure it really is just a small change, we can focus that monitoring very early in the course of isotretinoin and realizing that even if there is a very small change, it should be reversible as they stay on the drug. So this is one of those things where mild changes we treat through. So if we look at it graphically another way, we expect triglyceride changes, again, mild ones, in 20 to 44% of people, they peak early, about 60 to 70 days into treatment. LFT changes, a very small percent of people, and again, they're peaking into the about 60 or 70 days or beforehand. And why do we need to think about doing less labs? Again, we talked about that it might be a barrier to taking isotretinoin. Fear and fainting are real things that happen to everyone, but especially in adolescence. So a fear of needles affects up to 20% of adolescents. A true phobia, like I hate snakes, I won't go near a snake, I will run out of this room if there's a snake, you can't convince me there's anything good about them. In fact, all things without legs I do not like. So people, if you start talking about needles, they get like all shaky and they're like ready to run. Like you can't even explain it. You're like, why are you running away? All I said was needle and they're like out the door. That happens and it's maybe even 10% of people. And then it happens right in that age group where we're treating people with isotretinoin. Another reason to think about this is because it costs real money. And so we're thinking about the cost of healthcare at a government level because it's not sustainable. But that doesn't always result in changes for us. We're like, great, healthcare is a problem for the government. Congress will take care of it. But it's also a cost for that patient, that individual right in front of us. So skipping a CBC means that each time you skip it, it's 45 to $75. If we only do two tests of the hepatic panel, we're saving about $223. So over the course of isotretinoin, a typical course, will save that patient $850. So sometimes you say, well, that's not a ton of money, um, but that's 32 tanks of gas. That's really meaningful for that parent who's driving back and forth to your office every month. 
it's an Xbox. So when we appeal to the demographic that we're treating, that's real money. And it's a new iPhone 7. So real cash dollars that we can save that family, that patient over the course. And we can tell them that we're still going to keep them safe. So as a result of this study, I just want to walk you through what we do at our group at Penn State. So first, we always take a history. So we've talked a lot about all the different things that we might want to ask about when it comes to lots of different drugs, including isotretinoin. Um, but we will ask about a family history of hyperlipidemia, of liver disease, and hematologic disease again in that specific patient or in first-degree family members. And if there's no hematologic risk factor issues in the past, no more. We don't check the CBC. But for every patient, we will check the baseline liver and, uh, liver and lipid panel. So two things could happen. Green light. Everything's great. We start them on month one. We always start with 40 milligrams daily of isotretinoin. The second month, they take more of a weight-based dose, which is either 60 milligrams or 80 milligrams a day. We will check the next test after that second month, that maintenance dose after they've taken the first month of 60 or 80. So they've had 40 in their system, and they've had what we think will be their maintenance dose in their system for a month. Then we check, and if everything's great, we don't check anymore. So one thing is we will continue, of course, to do the pregnancy test. That hasn't changed. We typically do urine pregnancy tests and not blood. Now, if there's any issue with that second test, we will repeat it. So it's not saying that if there's no change, if, if there's something bad, like, oh, heck, we better just pray until the end. No, we keep checking to see that it spontaneously resolves. So when we say that most people have those issues and spontaneously resolve by 60 to 70 days, there's always a little bit of variability. Somebody might have their issue resolved more around 90 days rather than earlier. And so if that baseline um, blood work is also abnormal, then we'll do more testing, because we certainly want to watch somebody who has a triglyceride of 250 at baseline more closely than somebody who has a triglyceride of 120, which is normal. So there are lots of drugs that we could potentially consider monitoring for with acne, so we're just going to stay in that category with spironolactone. So just a reminder, spironolactone um, is an androgen receptor blocker and affects 5-alpha reductase activity. So we use it a lot for lots of things like acne and hirsutism. So at least for our acne um, patients and in the literature, the dosings that supported is about 50 to 100 milligrams a day. Sometimes we'll go a little bit higher in somebody who might be a little bigger. And when you look in the textbooks, this is the list of the most common adverse effects. I can say from the dozens and dozens and probably hundreds of women that I put on spironolactone for acne, it's a rare patient who notices that she actually pees anymore or drinks anymore. Um, I've had occasional women who come in and say that they have breast tenderness or spotting. And I should say that, at least in our group, we will give people, women, uh, spironolactone even if they are not on birth control. So some groups say, I won't give it to anyone, the risk of pregnancy. Well, that's really a late effect, and we have that conversation with people. You know, don't get pregnant on this. Even if you're trying, I'm not going to give it to you. So women who are actively trying to conceive, we won't give this to. Um, but we don't require that people be on birth control. If they are on birth control, it blocks the breast tenderness and spotting between the periods. 
But for those women who get these side effects, I've had a few of them come in and say, yeah, I noticed that I have a little spotting and some breast tenderness, but I love this drug. I don't want to stop it. I'm like, okay, that's fine. As long as, you know, let me know if it gets to be a problem. Um, so, you know, just letting people know, but it doesn't mean that you have to stop. So there is a very large study um, just recently done out of Boston where they had very good records of all their patients who get put on drugs and for what their diagnosis is. And they looked at 1,800 women who were put on spironolactone for acne, uh, androgenetic alopecia, and other things, but they had to have a diagnosis of acne. Of those 1,800 women, 13 had an mildly elevated potassium. None of them had a wildly elevated or severely elevated level of potassium, which is six or higher. So these were all somewhere around five to five and a half. Of those 13, six of them had a second test and it was normal. The other seven really did have a mildly elevated potassium. So the rate really, because you know, remember the lab machine can have a bad day and it kind of throws out a weird, wacky result sometimes. So six of those women really didn't have an elevated potassium, only seven did. So that rate is less than one half of 1% of women had an elevated potassium on spironolactone. Now what's important to realize is that the investigators really picked their population of acne patients to be those women who were relatively young, healthy, did not have a lot of other comorbidities, and were not on the medications that would cause problems and potentially elevate potassium. So really, the take-home point here from this study is, for young, healthy women who are not on medications that would cause problems, we really don't need to measure potassium. None of these were anything more than mild elevations that their kidneys would be able to take care of. Um, and the other important thing to realize is people are already starting not to check. So when they looked at all the women who were prescribed spironolactone for acne, depending on if you were a dermatologist or an endocrinologist, either a quarter of your patients or up to half of your patients were not ordered a potassium level or any kind of panel that had potassium in it. So people are already sort of starting to do this inherently. So what are the things that can elevate your potassium? So I throw a coconut and kale up here because in the last couple of years, for some reason, this has become really popular. So I have a mnemonic to help me remember what things I need to talk through my patients about. So beta blockers supposedly can increase your potassium a little bit. ARBs and ACE inhibitors, so mostly antihypertensives as a group you can think of. Drinks, namely coconut water. And then kale, leafy greens have a lot of potassium. And then pot potassium-sparing diuretics, which include amelioride or triumpterine. So again, as a part of that study, they had already sort of kicked out the people who might be on these types of medications. Those people were not included in the study people who are on these medications where you're considering using spironolactone, you would probably want to do intermittent potassium levels. All right, a toe, yes. What does that have to do with drug levels? So this is a toe with onychomycosis. So of the times that somebody walks in with that toe and you say, I think you have onychomycosis, what percent do you think you're right? Never. I saw somebody shaking their head. What do you think? Throw out a number. Better, you're better than that. 
higher. So pretty close to 80 to 90%, depending on, I guess, how much training you have or something like that. So I would say be pretty confident. Be like, yeah, when I look at a toe and I say that's onychomycosis, I'm usually right. When you look at a toe and you say, you know, I don't think that is, you are right 95% of the time. And so because of this, because our clinical accuracy is so high, testing is really only indicated if it seems weird, like the pattern looks atypical, or you're saying, you know what, I said this was onychomycosis, it's really not responding to treatment, it could be some other organism rather than a typical dermatophyte. So the things under that point that says easier, that might improve your diagnostic accuracy have been shown if there's foot scaling, then our chance of being right is higher. When that change in the nail is more distal, then we're more likely to be right. If we see subungal debris, two or more nails, and crumbliness of the nail where it's breaking apart, we're more likely to be right. And when our patient is 60 or older. So all those things help us to be diagnostically accurate. So testing, it's also important to realize, is not always correct. So we get false negatives from clippings and cultures and lots of KOHs um, in 10 to 33% of the time. We also get false positives. So when it's atypical and you clip it and it falls on the floor and I have to pick it up and put it back in the cup, then we get false positives. And the cost of the study varies depending on whether it's a K Seriously, has anyone ever gotten hit with nail Oh my gosh, yeah, as a resident, I caught one in the eye. Not, not okay. So I'm happy I wear glasses now. Um, so sending off a piece of the nail for a PIS stain, which can be one of the best tests, is pretty pricey. So doing these tests means we're spending money. So terbinafine, again, I promised just a quick review of some of the mechanisms. Um, this is often testable material when we're doing our research and things, is it inhibits that squalene epoxidase in the figure on the right-hand side, and that really kills the fungus in two different ways. That squalene is toxic to the cell when it builds up, but the ergosterol that isn't being made but really needs to be made can't get into the fungal cell wall, so the fungus dies. So terbinafine is one of those things that is fungicidal, not fungistatic like many of the azoles. So here are some of those things that can really help reinforce when we're going to be right. So the foot scaling on the upper left, the interdigital maceration, and then the distal yellowing and crumbliness uh, that we could imagine in that toenail. And because of this, the AAD put in one of its recommendations to say, you know what, our clinicians are pretty good at this. Let's just say that you don't need to do testing when you feel pretty confident that it's a typical case of onychomycosis. This is for the Choosing Wisely campaign that was put together by, I think it was internal medicine, maybe the American College of Physicians. They asked sort of every discipline to say, what's something you could do to improve value, meaning preserve outcomes but maybe decrease cost? And this was one of the ones that dermatology put forth. So, Terbinafine myth, this idea that terbinafine is the worst drug out there. I have so many patients who come in saying, like, I heard that could really injure your liver. Um, and then they want some topical that costs $2,300. And I have the conversation with them that 
you know, I know that you've seen commercials for this drug recently, and yeah, that toe with the football helmet really is cute, um, but this is not gonna be the best treatment for you. Um, it's topical, yes, certainly it's not getting into your system in any way, but it's probably not gonna help you. So the cure rates are about 15%, and that's in trials that lasted for about a year, so 48 weeks, and the cost really is $2,300. Whereas terbinafine, now that there's a generic available, the cure rate is 70% and higher, and the cost, if you just go to, in my area, Giant or Target and pay out of pocket without insurance, can be anywhere from 10 to $25. Again, that question, isn't it really dangerous for my liver? So the risk of hepatic injury, and I, I got this statistic from my friend who's a hepatologist. She was like, yeah, heck, if I could just get people to stop prescribing Bactrim, I'd be really happy. Don't worry about terbinafine. So the risk of hepatic, like severe hepatic injury, the fear that our patients have, is one out of 50 to 120,000. That's essentially the same risk as dying in a skydiving accident. It's incredibly rare. And the risk of hepatic injury from Bactrim, Bactrim that we use for acne or folliculitis or anything else, it's one of the top five drugs to cause hepatic injury. It's not terbinafine. So monitoring or not monitoring. So the changes that we might see with terbinafine, number one, they're mild changes that won't cause severe hepatic failure. The changes that happen, they are reversible, just like in isotretinoin and it's avoidable. So essentially, the changes happen only after people have been exposed to four to six continuous weeks of terbinafine. So we can take advantage of that. So a typical course of terbinafine that I used to give people would be three continuous months. And because of that long period past that four or six weeks, I needed to check their liver functions both before and afterwards. But this is where the four to six weeks is. And there was a study that came out showing that pulses, monthly pulses of terbinafine, the cure rate is equivalent. So sometimes we're not always looking for a new regimen to work better. We just need it to be the same. And so in this case, giving them a month, waiting a month, treating again in that second month, which would have lined up with their last month of treatment, taking a break, I'm essentially giving them pulses, but allowing their liver to recover in between. And I can still reassure them that they're going to get the same benefit that they would have gotten from the three continuous months. And there are lots of pulse regimens for various different uh, antifungals out there. This is just the one that I typically use because I know that terbinafine has one of the best cure rates for onychomycosis. All right. So I was really glad that Dr. Rosen didn't get a chance to answer one of the really good questions that was put up earlier, because I'm going to. All right, so TNF inhibitors, we heard a lot about this related to the Embrel talk earlier today that Robert gave. Um, and one of the challenges is that, you know, you can't talk off the label um, or the insert when it comes to those types of talks, but it's our job as clinicians to sort of say, like, have we advanced beyond the label? Do we have enough patient history and experience to say like, what are we doing? Do we really need to do this? Because the drug isn't new anymore. We have 20 years of data or 15 years of data for some of these drugs. And so the inserts and a lot of the textbooks, and I should say actually, 
we, we talked about how the source of some of our data is a textbook. So a lot of textbooks, they are written like three to five years before they're even published. So the data that's in them is already out of date. It's great for global concepts, but not up-to-date information. And speaking of up-to-date, I looked at their website for their recommendations on isotretinoin, and that's where I saw the recommendations for the SED rate, the CPK, and everything else that needs to be checked. So I would say take kind of some of these sites with a grain of salt, because they aren't always focused on some of the newest recommendations. So what the insert says is the TB test, liver function, CBC, hepatitis B and C. And subsequently, to get the annual TB tests and periodic, again, left to your discretion, I suppose, the LFTs and CBC. So the hepatitis pro profile certainly makes sense. And what's interesting in that is that we used to take the um, you know, history of hepatitis B and say, all right, that's a complete contraindication. If you test positive for hepatitis B, you can't take a TNF inhibitor. And again, my friend the hepatologist says, you know, there actually are ways that we can support people who have very well controlled, you know, no evidence of hepatitis B um, DNA in their system. We, we can probably keep that person safe. It just requires the help of a gastroenterologist or hepatologist. But we do need to be careful that if those levels aren't really low and they aren't suppressed, this can cause a fulminant reactivation of hepatitis B, and that's pretty bad. But it's not true of hepatitis C, and this took a little while for us to figure out, is that TNF inhibitors are not contraindicated in somebody who has hepatitis C. And that's even true of people with HIV. Again, we have to do it in cooperation with their specialist, but having hep C or HIV doesn't mean you can't be on these drugs. So therefore, monitoring for hep C, like doing that pre-evaluation testing, the question is like, why are we doing it? So are we doing it because hepatitis C is a silent epidemic? It's not gonna change my decision to give that person the drug. So I think we sometimes need to question like, again, is this reasonable? Is it applicable? What am I doing with that test result? And hep B testing, I always have to sometimes go back to the CDC. One thing that helps me is in parentheses right here, infected to the core. That helps remind me that really people who have a hep B infection should have a positive anti-hep B core antibody. So people will have the surface antibody if they were vaccinated. But if you have the core, then you were infected with hep B at some point, and that's when we really need to go checking. All right, and this came up earlier too. So tuberculosis testing. I don't know if you've ever interpreted a TB test, but it, it's a little bit of magic. You know, you really have to say like, where does that induration stop and start? Because it's like measuring a wheel. It's very hard to determine that. So it's very subjective and we can get a lot of false positives with other infections, including people who had the BCG vaccination. So there's a lot more use of this interferon gamma releasing assay. This will always be positive in people who had tuberculosis. It will not revert to negative if they have, say, treated latent tuberculosis because it comes from T cells. And our immune systems always keep those memory T cells. So even though your disease might be controlled and there is no mycobacteria in your lungs, your T cells will still 
trigger a positive with this test. What's nice is that there's no subjectivity to the interpretation of the PPD wheel on the skin, and there are fewer false positives for people who may have had infections with other mycobacteria in the past. And that's really the trouble with the PPD. And that kind of got me thinking about this question of like, who has tuberculosis in the United States? Like, is this even a thing for us? And so, yeah, tuberculosis is a thing. It's just not really a thing as much in the US. So there are about 2 billion cases of tuberculosis or people infected with tuberculosis in the world. That's like a third of the world population. But it's mostly over here and not really over here. So our rate of infection, I wrote it down, is less than 25 cases per 100,000 people compared to all these other countries where it might be 125 or greater than 500 cases per 100,000 people. And what helps is who gets tuberculosis in the US? Well, two-thirds of those cases were in people not born in the US and emigrated in. So we can already sort of maybe start to suspect who might have tuberculosis before giving them a TNF inhibitor. It's gonna be people who were not born here who emigrated here. It could have been 10 years ago or 15 years ago. It's just that they never had reason maybe to be checked for a PPD. People who were uh, incarcerated or with alcoholism or uh, IV drug abuse and ever had homelessness. So again, hopefully down the road, we'll have some suggestions about who we really need to target our TB monitoring on. Um, but we can also think about some of those other tests. So uh, CBC and LFTs were recommended. So who, how often does a CBC change during TNF inhibitor treatment? So just like isotretinoin, this is incredibly uncommon. Mild changes are only in one to 3% of people. And because they're so mild, there's no complication of that change. So changes in platelets are incredibly rare. There's like six case reports. Neutropenia, another component of the CBC, incredibly rare. And again, we might monitor more in those people who have a history of an issue with their neutrophils. There might be people out there who are just more sensitive to drugs and they have their neutrophils drop and they have them drop with certain drugs repeatedly. So it makes sense, hey, have you ever had issues with the neutrophils or I can go back in and see your CBC and that occasionally it does dip down. You're the person I'm gonna monitor that CBC on, but maybe it doesn't make sense to monitor every person every year uh, who's on a TNF inhibitor. So one thing that I just wanted to point out before I do my, uh, my summary comments is that it's very hard to change. It is very hard to leave a meeting like this with all your notes and all the time that you spent in these chairs and to say, you know what, I'm really gonna, I'm gonna do this. Like, I'm not gonna maybe check labs every month on isotretinoin. That's a very challenging mental leap. And I just think it's important for you to know that, that if you don't go home and do it, it's because it really takes a, a lot of bravery sometimes to do it or to read an article and say, you know what? That really makes sense. And I think those patients in that study are a lot like my patients. I'm gonna to start to do that. 
or I'm gonna stop doing what they said I should stop doing. And there's this status quo bias. So essentially as people, not even just providers, but as people, we are very likely just to keep doing the same thing over and over because mentally it feels better. It's easier. But sometimes we do change. And so when I started changing the way I used antibiotics, when I started using low-dose antibiotics, I had people coming in and they'd say, why are you doing the 20 milligrams? Why am I not getting 100? The easier thing was just to hit refill or not argue with them and just be like, sure, I'll give you another you know, 100 milligrams for another six months. We don't need to worry about that. And I just said, you know what? There's actually some great research showing X, Y, and Z. Because then by blaming it on the research, it's not about me being the right one or I was wrong before. Because, you know, quite honestly, I don't want to lose face in front of my patient. I don't want to say, I was wrong, sorry. Sometimes I do have to do that, but I really don't want to have to. And so by saying, you know what, this research study showed that we can keep you as safe with fewer lab checks, I think that you would be fine to just have two or three lab checks instead of every month. They sometimes can understand that change. Um, so just for you to realize that this is a pretty powerful kind of bias to overcome, but it can be done. And the way that I do it with my patients is with this little research blaming trick. So to wrap up, to realize that the fear that we have, both to change our practice, but the fear of our patients to have all those needle draws is real. Fear is real, but the costs are also very real. So every time we make an order, there are studies showing that if they put the dollar sign, the cost of a lab in the EMR, right next to our order, it changes our behavior. So right now, we don't know usually how much something costs how many tens or hundreds of dollars it might cost to just order that test. But we know that if we think about it, it actually does change our behavior. And for isotretinoin to say that there is data to show that we can skip the CBCs, focus on the LFTs and the lipids, and focus on those high yield points baseline and early in treatment when those mild changes are more likely to be seen. With spironolactone, young healthy women not on any medications, you don't need to monitor. Terbinafine, with the pulse therapy where your treatment is less than that four to six weeks where it starts to put a strain on the liver, where you might see some mild transaminitis, we don't need to monitor. That severe changes for these medications is very rare. And for TNF inhibitors, we're hoping to see some changes in the monitoring practices, um, but that in our practice, because of the evidence of changes in the CBC being so rare, we do not check it routinely. Uh, we will check the hepatitis B. Hepatitis C, we're a little iffy on at this point. We will check LFTs and, of course, TB, but we use the interferon gamma releasing assay. So that's the quantiferon gold or T-spot. They have different brand names. And then after that, we just check the interferon gamma releasing assay and LFTs simply and leave it at that. All right. Thank you. The overall performance of the speaker. How useful will this session be in your practice?
As a result of this program, do you intend to change your patient care? So again, I know it's late in the day and I'm the last speaker again. Somebody must really like me. Um, you're welcome to stand up and leave, but I'll answer some of these questions. Um, so isotretinoin monitoring hepatic panel or just AST and ALT? So I think that uh, phrase hepatic panel gets thrown around and is interpreted a little differently depending on your institution. So for us, our hepatic panel includes the ALCFAS, AST, and ALT. Uh, we do routinely order that just because for some wacky reason, if you just order an AST alone plus an ALT alone, it costs more than just running the panel. I think it's because of the way the machine is set up in the lab. Um, so one of the reasons we check both is while we know the ALT is more likely to represent hepatic injury more than AST, which can be from liver or muscle or other things, we do sometimes like to look at that ratio because then we can start to have the conversation with our young patients about how alcohol really isn't a great thing to be drinking while they're on isotretinoin. So again, that old rule of like the two to one ratio for the AST to ALT can be due to alcohol. So we do uh, check both. Uh, isotretinoin, female patients, baseline urine pregnancy or quant. We just do a urine pregnancy um, because we're gonna stick them for blood. You could get a quant, um, but we just, kind of want to get them in the habit of peeing into a cup each time. Again, because we're not doing monthly blood tests, we're gonna still have to check their um, pregnancy status every month, so we have them do the urine. Um, can you still bill for high-risk medication monitoring at follow-up? Um, so my boss would say yes, I would say no. <laughs> so I feel like what I do at an isotretinoin monitoring visit I know my isotretinoin patients better than any other patient. You know, I see them every month. I know everything about them. I know when their finals and their tests are and how their girlfriend is and all this stuff. So um, I feel like I spend literally 30 seconds checking them for their isotretinoin and the other 10 minutes just chatting. So I don't bill for high risk based on that because I'm not checking um, blood work every month. You probably could find a way around it in terms of like the complexity of the counseling and that aspect of it. So, but for me, honestly, like RBUs are not my biggest concern. Other people are better at that. Um, where, what are your reasons for starting at 40 daily for the first month before increasing? Is there a big difference in side effects? So, Great question. The side effects of isotretinoin are dose-related. Um, sort of as a group, we've said, we're gonna start at 40. We like to ease people into it. And rather than have their lips like peel off and break in that first month and for them to say like, I'm not going any further, this is crazy. We sort of ease them into it. That's our rationale. So we give them 40 for the first month. We say, you know what, you're doing great. You can stick with it. Now we're gonna go up just a little bit. You can do it. And then we go up to the 60 or the 80 and they get used to it. Um, do you still see male patients? Unfortunately, yes, we do, because um, we as a group say, you know what, if we're going to sign them off into iPledge, we have to see them, plus we feel like we want to really counsel and interact with them. So we have considered doing telederm um, storm forward visits for our male isotretinoin. Um, one of the concerns was like, can you really evaluate their affect and their mood through, you know, storm forward? Technically you could through some of the various screening uh, surveys for depression, um, but yes, for now, uh, we're being equal to our male and female patients and saying everybody needs to come in every month. 
do I give oral spiro to breastfeeding women? That's a really good question. I had to look that up in Hippocrates the other day, and I think we came down on the side, you know, I would just have to look it up. So whoever asked me that question, I will look, up, look it up on my phone in the back, because I just don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, but again, we will not give it to women who are actively trying to conceive, and certainly not if they're pregnant. Uh, is pulse dose terbinafine effective? Yes, it's as effective as the continuous pulses, do, or co rather continuous um, three months. Do we run into coverage issues? Uh, so these days, honestly, we just tell people to go to Target and Giant and not worry about insurance. Um, if they want us to run it through insurance and if it gets kicked back and it requires some kind of testing, We'll have a conversation with them about whether that's really necessary. Um, but most of our patients will just go and buy it out of pocket. 70% uh, cure rate. How often does the cured nail look normal? So that 70% cure rate uh, was actually clinical and mycologic cure. So it's actually pretty good. Um, pulse dosing regimen. I do it monthly and give them three monthly pulses. So the whole thing takes five months because there's those two months where they're doing nothing in between. They can use topical terbinafine, but they're not taking the pill. Um, is pulsing 500 milligrams daily times seven days. So I have not heard of using 500 milligrams of terbinafine daily, so I can't comment on that. Uh, strict with alcohol sensation when the patient's taking terbinafine. Um, no, not really. I mean, I try and evaluate if they're binge drinking or drinking a lot, because now both the terbinafine and their alcohol are putting a stressor on their liver. But it's not like my concern about alcohol with somebody who's on methotrexate, where it really increases their risk of fibrosis. So my answer there is I let people drink when they're on terbinafine as long as it's not excessive. When do we check LFTs in patients with terbinafine and if patients are on it longer than three months? So if I'm doing that pulsing regimen where they're just taking it for a month, then off, then a month, um, I just check to see if they had a baseline LFT in the system just to make sure that they have a normal liver beforehand. If we don't see it, then we try and get records from the PCP and if they've had testing in the six months prior. Basically, we're doing everything we can not to have to stick people. Um, so we've talked about the pulsing. Um, do you pulse terbinafine for all patients or maybe only the people with um, high risk for liver injury? I do it for all patients, so that way I can get around the need to check their uh, hepatic panel. Are we concerned about adding terbinafine when a patient is on a statin? Um, no, not really. Especially if they've been on the statin for a while. Great, really good questions. Thank you so much. This has been a production of Dermcast TV, brought to you by the Society of Dermatology PAs, recorded live during our summer 2017 meeting in San Diego, California.